have in my hand. Powerful Word of God. Can change lives, heal broken hearts, save man's soul. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. I turn to your neighbor and just tell him you love him. You know, we don't have enough love going on. We need to love people. You know, things may not go the way you want them to go, but that's okay. Because the bottom line is that God's still on the throne. And when God's not on the throne of your life, then you go out and loot buildings and set limos on fire and break windows and do destructive things. But when God's on the throne of your heart, oh well, here we go. So we got to love people before we do anything else. We're going to be in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. I want to read it together. You follow along as I read. My version is the New American Standard. Now, I think I'm in NIV. NIV, And uh, hopefully it won't be too of a renegade for you. But it starts out by saying, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Well, I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates and the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers in cavalry with me. And when Sanballat the Hornonite... And Tobiah the Ammonite official, officially heard about this. They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Well, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what, God, what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no uh, mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved <clears throat> on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley of, by night, examining the wall. Finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because all, as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be, in doing, who would be doing the work. 
And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the precious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and uh, Geshem uh, the uh, Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. May God bless the reading of his word today. How many of you have heard the Proverbs, strike when it's hot? Get with it. Anybody grow up with ones that were different than that? Yes, what'd you, anybody yell them out to me. What what'd you, what'd you, what would they tell you? Get on the ball. <clears throat> okay, anybody else? Get her done. <clears throat> you didn't grow up with that. You just adopted that one. Any, now, not yesterday. Okay, anybody else? Well, those are all good ones. Last week, our hero, Nehemiah, was left weeping. We saw him weeping and very concerned about the ruins in Jerusalem. And in this chapter, we're going to find practical help on how to get the restoration started. Not only corporately, but personally. See, I believe churches need to heal as well, don't you? But the church will heal when the people heal from within. And so we need to be about that business. Most of us find ourselves in some sort of ruin in our life. It could be some activity we've, a habit that we've uh, stayed with and just keeps coming back and keeps coming back, keeps coming back. Others have really been severely damaged. And the ruins in their life are much greater than even the ones that we see in our own. And they come in different forms and fashions. Amen? You fill in the blank what it is that you're battling. But Nehemiah finds an opportunity in chapter 2. And I'm going to read back over them again as we go through it and talk about them a little bit. Let's look at those first four verses again. It says, In the month of Nisan, underline that one, In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine, gave it to the king, and I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, What does your face look why does your face look so sad? Are you not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city of my fathers are buried lies? In ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king said to me, Well, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, this opens differently in, from chapter 1 when it talks about the month of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar when Nehemiah finally had the opportunity to inform the king about Jerusalem. Uh, it happened in the month of Nisan. But when you open the book 
it was in the month of Kislev, which is approximately the same month as December. Nisan corresponds to our calendar about April. So there's a gap in here from when he first heard about the ruins of Jerusalem and then when he starts to take action about it. And there's no real reason other than, I believe, that he wanted the prayers that he'd been praying to God to have time. Sometimes you need to pray, and God's not going to answer you this way. He's going to see where your heart really is. He wants to see, are you really serious about making these changes? So he's listened to me for years talk about losing weight. So what did he decide to do? Use an infection in my leg to pull 52 pounds of weight off of me. He did that in 16 days. I'm not recommending that diet plan at all for anyone. It is not a recommended way to do it. But I'm taking it as a blessing from God. God took that time, and when I said, I'm I'm, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose, and I don't lose, he said, yeah, you're going to lose, and here's how you're going to do it. Now, the battle has been ever since then, because my appetite returned. Somehow, if I could have kept that appetite turned off, that would have been awesome. See, I don't understand people who don't have to eat. They make no sense to me. You know people like that? They just don't have to eat. Well, I'm just not hungry, so I'm just not going to eat. There is something inherently wrong with that person. There is. They're just not right with God. I'm convinced of it. They're sent here by, by the devil. I know they are. But anyway, enough of that nonsense. But the king notices something about him, doesn't he? And he says, I notice you're sad. And he understood that it came more from his heart than it did from, even though his facial expression showed his sadness. But then he goes on to say that Nehemiah was afraid. I wonder why he was afraid. Ever thought about that? You see, what was important is that as the cupbearer, he tasted all the food and drank all the wine before the king ever got to taste it or eat it. And if it was poisoned, then guess what? Nehemiah died. Well, he was a good old boy. Let's bring in the next one. Okay. And so he was a bit afraid because the king, he had gained the king's trust. And when you gain a person's trust, you don't want to lose it. But he, he was afraid that he might based on what he was going to ask the king. So can you see where he was a bit afraid? But the good news for Jeremiah is that he was trustworthy. And he was reliable. He had a high level of loyalty to his king. And though there was a moment of danger arising, he persevered and pressed through because he understood that God had called him to this spot. Now I want you to think about, as Nehemiah prayed and sent those prayers up, hoping that God would respond and waiting for God to respond, He begins in verse 5, verses 5 through 8, to give us the first step to recovery. And the first step to recovery is that we need to seize the critical moment. Seize the critical moment. Now, the outline that I put in your bulletin, it's blank. I want you to write down the things that that God's laying on your heart to write down. Or would you rather me put them in so you can fill in the blanks? Let me see your hands. Who wants to fill in the blanks? Nobody? Oh, good. Okay, good. Well, then I'll just keep doing it this way. 
So he wants to seize the critical moment. That's the first step in the recovery process. Look at verses 5 through 8. And so I answer the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And the king with the queen sitting beside him and asked me, how long will the journey take and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, the provinces on the west of the river, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And, I, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make the beams of the gates, the citadel, the temple, and for the city wall, for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So that's real critical. Underline that in, your, in verse 8. The gracious hand of my God was upon me. That's, a, that's an important phrase to never forget. See, he had thoroughly thought through what it was going to take to get the job done. And so he was going to seize the moment. Seize that moment. It's like when you're sitting talking to somebody and you, you know there's an opportunity now to share the gospel. Seize the moment. Now, I'm not saying grab your Bible and beat them with it. That's not what I'm saying at all. But there's an opportunity for you to share what God's doing in your life. And you'll know, you'll know if you're going in praying for God to give you those types of opportunities, you will get them. It's just like the video that, that, that we played uh, to, to prepare us for a communion. It really is about the heart, isn't it? Danny Gokey's talking about the heart and preparing your heart. And it's all about your heart being prepared. So day by day, if you're in the Word of God, asking God to give you opportunities, He will. And when they come, seize the moment. Seize the moment. Don't let it go by. And if it pleased the king to send me, so he set a time. He was actually gone 12 years. Now, that's a long time for the king to let his cupbearer be gone that he trusted. So he had to trust somebody else for 12 years to get the job done. But Nehemiah needed sufficient time to get accomplished what God was calling him to do. You're going to need significant time. You won't be able to change, perhaps, overnight, this issue that you fight with and battle with on a day-to-day -day basis. Some may. Some can. And some have. But others fight that same fight all of their life. Because it's an ingrained habit that's hard for them to beat. But guess what? God still loves you and God still cares about you. And God still has forgiven you and has covered that sin. Every day you start the battle again. Every day you start that battle again. But he needed time. So he needed those letters. He needed to get the provisions. Uh, he needed to take the timbers located in the mountains of Lebanon. He needed to take those with him. And uh, the king sent him all the letters and all the helpers that he needed to protect him in, in, in the journey. But what I'm picking up from this section of 5 through 8 is that we've got to be ready to think seriously about what it's going to require to walk with God. So many people come to the Lord and they don't think about beyond the water of baptism, what, what's next? What is next? That's why I wrote that book. What's next? What's the next step? We need to take it. We've got a, we've got a meeting coming up on the 4th. That's a great time for you to come and begin to take the next step. And to be more involved in what you're doing now at church. See, it's not enough to come on Sunday morning and, and sit through church. You need to be coming to our small group times. You know, we used to call it Bible school. I call it small group time now. Because it's really a small group study. You need to be coming at 9.30 for that. 
Well, just boy, I just can't get around. Boy, you get to work at eight o'clock. Some of you get to work earlier than that. You don't miss. As they say, rain or shine, you're there, amen? You're clicking the clock. Here we go. Checked out at Walmart last night, and I'll guarantee you that lady checking us out did not want to be there. You could tell on her face. She did not want to be there. Rink, rink, you know. She was putting stuff in sacks that she shouldn't have put together in sacks. So we resacked it as we picked them up and put them in the basket. But you've got to think serious about what's going to require to walk the walk of God. And so many people, they just they get in a complacency and they're satisfied. Never be satisfied with your walk with God. Never. When you get satisfied, you're in trouble. Then Nehemiah leads us to the second step in the recovery, picking up at verses 9 and 10. And the second one is you enter the open door that when it's provided for you. Verses 9 and 10. So, when, so I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. And when Sanballat and the Hornonite and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. <laughs> Nehemiah, Nehemiah not only came with a full military escort, <clears throat> but it was apparent that he came with the authority of the throne of Persia behind him as well. I want you to remember that if you set out to change something in your life for the better, you have the full authority of the throne of God behind you. You can do it because you've got that authority working with you and in you to accomplish that goal. Whatever it is, never back up because you've got God backing you up. So Nehemiah met two very troubled troublesome and troubled uh, enemies. Sanballat, I love these names, Sanballat the Hornonite, that was, that was your first mistake. And then Tobiah the Ammonite. A Hornonite was a devotee of the god Horon, which was a local deity in Palestine, which indicated that Sanballat was no more than a pagan, what we see a lot running loose in our culture today. Then you got Tobiah, was a citizen of Ammon, which was the, in the country that we now call Jordan. Capital of that, by the way, is Ammon. But Ammon was one of the tribes described for, uh, descended from Lot, the nephew, nephew of Abraham. And it was related to Israel, by, but always it was an enemy of Israel. And this records the first appearance in this book of the enemies of Nehemiah. Cameron Townsend was the founder of Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he tells this story of how he took Wycliffe into Mexico. It was back in the 20s at a time when Mexico was very sensitive to any religious activity. They had thrown off the shackles of the church and they were very opposed to public preaching or the building of the churches. But Cameron Townsend went to a tiny Indian village up in the mountains and began to work there, translating the scriptures into their language. Even though he couldn't preach, he found that he could be of help to the people. Their economy was suffering because they had poor crops. And so he taught them how to dam up a stream and divert the water into their fields. And that greatly increased the amount of crops that they raised. And soon their economy was at a high level. 
But word of the changes got back to the new president of Mexico, Lazaro Cardenas. He had a great heart of concern to help the Indians, but one day the president then drives in his limo to the Indian village, and he meets Cameron Townsend, and he introduces himself, and the president says, you're the man I came to see. He invites Townsend to come to the capital. They become close friends for the duration of Cardenas' presidency. He opens a wide door to the entire work of Wycliffe translators, and later the presidents continued that support. But in an unexpected way, Wycliffe found an open door through widespread labors through this incident. So you see, missionaries oftentimes will go into places and will bring something other than the gospel with them to get them in the door. See how God works? He does an amazing work in our life. So in many wonderful ways, God demonstrates that he can work in our lives, and that's what Nehemiah relied on. He seized the critical moment, entered the open door that God had set before him, and then he took the third step, beginning in verses 11 through the first part of verse 12, and that is to he honestly faced the full reality of his problem. He honestly faced the full reality of his problem. Look at verse 11 and part of verse 12. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. So he takes time to recover from his journey, jet lag for us, and then begins to examine individually and personally the extent of the problems that he faced. goes on to say, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And by night I went out to the valley gate toward the jackal well and dung gate, examined the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, that is the pool of Siloam. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up to the valley by night, examining the wall. And finally I turned back and redeemed, excuse me, re-entered through the valley gate. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet... I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. So, in anticipation, Nehemiah goes and checks what he needs to get done. He goes and surveys it and he begins to lay out a plan. As he sees how devastating the ruins are, he then lays out a plan to rebuild. What's your plan? Well, I don't need to rebuild anything, preacher. Yes, you do. Don't lie to yourself to believe you don't need to rebuild anything in your life. I don't care if you're Billy Graham himself. You've still got something to rebuild in your life. You see, most of us have gotten so complacent that we don't bring anybody with us to church. We don't open the Bible more than maybe once a week. Uh, We might sing songs in the car, but that, that doesn't amount to spending time in the Word of God. We spend little time in prayer because we don't really believe that He's going to answer us anyway. Or we've never seen him answer, so we're not going to pray. You see, we've got to face facts. We've got to name what it is that we're facing, and we've got to acknowledge to ourselves and others that we are in the midst of this struggle. Pray with me. Honestly, earnestly pray with me. Fervently pray with me. If you're acquainted with the work of Alcoholics Anonymous, they require you to stand up and say, Hello, my name is Harold, and I'm an alcoholic. They want you to tell him and tell each other. Be up front with the sin that you have. 
Wouldn't it be refreshing in the church for one by one by one for us to come to the front, stand in front of the church and say, Hi, my name is Harold, and I have the sin of... Who wants to start? No takers today. You know what the good news is? I can go right to that cross and tell Him everything. And then if I go to that cross and get on my knees and start to pray... Don't you think there'll be three or four or five or more who'll come right behind me and they'll put their hand on my shoulder and they'll pray with me and also they may begin to confess. Amen. So I want to encourage you. I know this church is starting to do something when we start finding people up here at the front praying, calling out to God. You know, we're still sitting complacent. It's time to move. It's time time to do something. And then Nehemiah begins to to involve the others in verses 17 and 18. He says, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of God, uh, that it was upon me, and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. You see, a good example of leadership is somebody who does the work, gets it going, makes it happen. Amen? I mean, we Say what you want, but... It's time to move this country forward. It's time for the churches to move forward. It's time to quit worrying about what size we are or what we don't have. We've got Almighty God on our side. So if God wants us to prosper, we will prosper. If God wants us to die, we will die. He'll remove the blessing. And when He removes the blessing, it's not pretty. So let's as a church fill up every seat in this place. Can we do it? Sure you can. If you believe and you pray, then you put legs to those prayers. Start bringing people with you. Well, I just don't have anybody who wants to come to the little old church. Well, drag them here. Offer to buy them lunch or something. You know they'll enjoy it when they come. You enjoy it. You keep coming. Amen? We do hug and howdy. I can't get you set back down. I did that in one church years ago when I was a youth minister in Oklahoma City. And the church secretary, when we first started, she sat down. She was on the front row. She'd always sit up there. She'd sit down, cross her arms. So I asked her on a staff meeting, I said, why do you do that? She goes, I'm not going to be forced to greet anybody. If I don't want to greet them, I don't want to say anything to them. I said, well, very good. I guess word got out because people kept walking up to her and said, stand up and give me a hug. And pretty soon, guess who the first one was when I'd say, okay, let's greet each other. She was the first one to pull out of the chair and go start hugging people. Funny how that works, isn't it? But he says, see the ruin that's around you. He points out where they are. He says, it's been long enough. The disgrace needs to be over. Let's begin. Let's start working. Let's get, you know, God is with us. We can make this happen. Of course, it helped that the king had sent all the stuff with them to get this done. Because when leadership steps out, certain things follow. Nehemiah galvanized the Jews to action. And they began the process of rebuilding. He appeals to their sense of self-respect and supplies an encouraging motive to begin. But when you actually start recovering your ruin, you will also meet severe resistance as Nehemiah discovers. Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. Verse 19. What is this you are doing, they ask? 
Are you rebelling against the king? See, when everybody, when anybody says, I will arise and build, somebody's going to step up, led by Satan, and tell you, no, you can't. No, you can't. When Donald Trump got that uh, uh, carrier to restore a thousand jobs, the previous president said, it's just the way we've got to, we got to understand, folks. It can't happen. They're all going to go overseas. No, they don't. You can stop it. You can step in the middle and say, no, let's don't do it. But you've got to make the environment work where it, where, it, where it works better. Amen? And that's what happens in church. We've got to make the church better. We've got to get you the tools so that you can get it done. But I can't give you a tool that you won't come and get. I can have the shed full. But if you don't come and get it, what good is the tool? You've got to come get it. So God is after these men to rebuild. He's after you and me to rebuild. But remember, opposition is going to come. But look how Nehemiah handles it in verse 20. I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We as servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Well, he puts them right where they are, doesn't he? You're never going to come to the cross because you don't deserve to be at the cross. Because if you're not going to humble yourself and admit your sin, why are you going to come to the cross? When the Bible talks about sin, he's very clear. Amen? Homosexuality is not right. It's not, it's not normal. That's what he says. It's not normal. Now, I know you may have friends that are like that and, and have chosen that lifestyle. We can only pray for them and show them by our example that, you know, that God loves them and cares about them. Amen? Just like He does any sinner. Amen? But that form of opposition, that's kind of interesting. So let's take a look at that. First of all, they mock and ridicule. These are the weapons that the enemy employs. He mocks and he ridicules. And you may have felt like that. Your friends laugh at you when you say you're going to make some changes and you've tried it before and you failed. You know, they're kind of laughing under the breath. Oh, yeah, 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 they won't ever do it. Oh, sure, I'll pray for you. You bet. Right? And you know good and well they're not going to pray for you. Then the second thing that the enemy does is they threaten and slander. They charge with charges of rebellion and disloyalty, you see. You're not being loyal to the king. And then the opposition stiffens and becomes openly unfriendly and threatening. You know, it's that next level of resistance that you run into that you just go, whoa, 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 whoa. Women were marching in Washington, D.C. Saturday. And all they were doing was telling you that it's okay to kill babies and it's okay to dismember babies. Because Planned Parenthood funded that whole thing. See? (laughs) It will never be okay to kill babies. There were 59 million people that wanted to march also. Did you know that? 59 million people that wanted to march on Washington. But the problem is, those were the babies that had been aborted since abortion was legalized in 1973. 59 million. Can you imagine the creativity, the artists that would have risen from that 59 million? Can you imagine we'd have a cure for cancer now? 
Perhaps if one of those in the 59 million had given, been given full life. And had you also noticed that every woman that marched had already been born? Wow. Wow. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Life is precious. Never forget it. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, I will not be bought brought under the power of anything. We need to work in our lives to control all the demons that we fight and face and bring them to the submission to the foot of the cross and let God's power overcome them. But Nehemiah clenches his fist and he says, Look, the God of heaven is with us. He will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. Do what you like. It is not going to stop us. You are the offender and have no rights to this land. It's a fascinating historic note here. And the historic note is found in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is given a great prophecy of the history of Israel and told of a period of 490 years that would be marked off in which God was going to do tremendous things for Israel. And the chronological event that would mark the beginning of that period is precisely stated in Daniel 9.25 when it says, When the decree goes forth to rebuild Jerusalem. Well, guess what? Here it is. The decree of Artaxerxes given to Nehemiah as the governor of the province to begin rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, issued in 445 B.C. It's the starting point of God's special period of 490 years for the people of Israel. Do not believe that God doesn't know what He's doing. I don't know why Donald Trump's the president, but God does. I don't know why Barack Obama was president for two terms, but God did. Because it's not who's in Washington that's the difference. It's who's on the throne of your heart that's the difference. Now, I may have disagreements with you on policy. I may, I may not see abortion the same way you see it. I may not see homosexuality the same way you see it. But I know what this says. And I will always stand with what I believe this says. And when they come to, come to tell me I can't do this, they'll have to pry it out of my cold, dead hands. Because I will always stand with this. And I'll never, I'll never change. I'll never change. So, by review, the steps of, of recovery from ruin are, first, a deep concern that leads us to prayer and to sorrow, then an opportunity to change to which we must make response, and then the facing of our facts, of our situation, honestly and squarely. And we can begin those steps to see God do great things. Pray with me, would you? Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the message of chapter 2 of Nehemiah. I'm praying, Father, that there will be someone today in this room who will say, I'm going to rebuild some walls that have been broken down. So, God, would you touch their hearts, touch their life, give them courage in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing great song, Just As I Am, because God wants you just that way. If you need